Welcome to the Gods of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss religious deconstruction, secular humanism, political activism, and epistemology. Together, we explore how to solve human problems with human solutions. We deconstruct, we activate, and then most importantly, we live our fucking lives. I am your host, Josh Ra, and you are the gods of tomorrow. Alright, alright, alright. Let's uh let's do this shit. Welcome back everybody. This is episode 24 of Gods of Tomorrow. I am Josh Ra. You can call me Josh and we are bringing another guest back on today. Ryan, she sat with me about a year ago and we went through her story with the JWs and her deconstruction from that and finding her own spiritual path afterwards. And today I brought her back because I've had so many requests of individuals to talk to me about divine femininity and how that's been impacted by Christianity. And in order to do that, we have to go back before Christianity into Judaism and even maybe prior to that time period. Now, divine femininity is a thing that's been of interest to me. I've looked at it uh, to some regard, especially in looking at Neopolithic and uh, Paleolithic time periods where we have seen, you know, the mother goddess or um, the, the, the goddess itself being worshipped prior to the inclusion of male counterparts. Uh, in fact, we don't even see male counterparts very often, even in Neolithic time periods. This is completely absent from that. This has been seen in cave paintings and so on from 35,000 to 50,000 years ago. So we know that the mother goddess, at least from what we found archaeological-wise, has been a prominent uh, premier piece of worship spiritual wise from human beings uh, before we ever even seen that male counterpart the sky daddy entered into that so we're going to talk about all that today and talk about what's happened where what happened to the divine femininity ryan welcome back my friend how are you i'm doing great thank you i love talking about this stuff with my friends because you ask really good questions and i know you're into it too so you get me excited about talking about divine femininity and what happened to it well, and I've seen your platform change so much in the year that we've spoken as well, where you spoke a lot about divine femininity. You spoke a lot about Asherah. There's still like, that's kind of the centerpiece of a lot of your following and the information you like to share. But you've also like branched out into different areas of interest too, um, to like kind of capture the interest, I guess, of the following that you've now collected or amassed in that time period. Are there some things outside of that divine femininity that has like been tugging at your heartstrings that you just really want to dive more into, but you always find yourself being brought back to this again? You know, I really always am brought back to the divine feminine, but I think what I would really like to do, and I think that's why I kind of needed to get my locus together of what happened with the divine feminine in Canaan. Mm -hmm. But what I would like to do is now start checking each of those branches and how it connects to Greece and other places, Carthage, just other outside sources that have similar gods or maybe even the very cognate same god mm -hmm. and finding out how they were worshipped in that culture. Is there any similarities? What's the carryover? Because 
I I never had realized how much cultures were talking to each other and borrowing from each other just with their right. But that's how they would do it. It makes sense that that's how you connect and communicate with cultures just by writing these beautiful poems and songs. And I I just always saw Canaan as a bubble because that's how the Bible portrays it. Mm -hmm. But I really need to see how Asher connects to other goddesses. And at what time did she kind of get shoved into like the, the Trinity where you see like the, mm-hmm. the mother goddess or the crone goddess, the maiden, and then like death. At what point was Asherah combined into just one? Cause I do think that that happened under the patriarchy at some point. There's just a bunch of synchronistic things that are happening because you can't, you can't control life and there's no borders. And if there's war, if there's famine, if there's a natural disaster, your religion could change just, <laughs> it really could just change overnight. And I want to know as much as I can, I want to know why that happened and why the divine feminine just got pushed aside. That's kind of, so yeah. wherever, I, wherever I can search it out is what I'm I'm planning on doing. Whenever we kind of dive into this and think about it, I, I, I really see almost anything when it comes to spirituality or culture in general as being a progression where you see like things slowly changing and evolving and influencing each other and new truths being accepted, truths and quotations here, and then creating new narratives around those particular ideologies and then those kind of spreading out and branching out as you're teaching people about them. And we see this in real time, even in our fast paced society around how we perceive relationships and economics and politics and religion like we see new ideas being conceptualized and shared and because of the internet we're able to just pass that across the world really quick and influence each other and i've seen things pop up in the last probably five years just since being on tiktok that i literally saw ideas bloom on tiktok about there being some sort of conspiracy and within a matter of a year, everyone thinks that's true. And there's this long history that's tied to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not true, though. I watched somebody invent that. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's but wild. that's how quickly. Yeah, it, it can spread like wildfire. Mm-hmm. But, and imagine back then when all you have is stories to tell and you can't read. Maybe, you know, symbols of some sorts to paint on a cave wall. But when all you have is stories to tell, that's you know, not that you're not working, you understand what I'm saying, but as a form of entertainment mm-hmm. to talk about your gods and what happened in the past and what you imagine the divine realm to be, of course, ideas are going to be elaborated. That's, I've elaborated on things myself without realizing, you know, yeah. my weight sometimes I might elaborate on, but just the opposite way. But the same can be said throughout history. <laughs> and that's okay. I just hope to encourage people to accept that truth, accept that religion has grown and changed Mm -hmm. and adapted based off of our ideas of what we see, just trying to make sense of it. And that can, like from my position, that can be seen as something divine, watching humans trying Mm -hmm. to figure themselves out, but we don't have to stay in that archaic past. We can take the beauty from it and grow from the bad things and we can bring the divine feminine back i mean that's absolutely i think that's okay to do i don't think there's anything wrong with that 
Yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit about the disappearance of the divine feminine. I, I don't know the exact dates. I've seen numbers thrown out there, you know, around you know, 1500 BCE or things like that. I, I think that <laughs> oh, what man. most people say is that once males began warring and conquering and invading other nations Ooh. and showing this masculine power in some way, we saw a it. reduction in the divine feminine. You saw yeah. talked about less less temples built, less, less structures built. It didn't altogether just disappear like overnight, so to speak, in, in those early time periods. Right. Because all the places you mentioned, Carthage had a divine feminine, uh, Mesopotamia had a divine feminine, Egypt had a divine feminine. All of these different areas had a goddess that held this position as a cohort to a high god that was respected and revered yep. for fertility and you know growth and creation and all these types of things. But as conquering start to occur, those goddesses started to fade more and more as being a central piece of importance because they weren't always necessarily war goddesses. Now, I, I, was right. saying, I want to say Inanna because Inanna was a war goddess. She was in Samaria. She's she was, badass. She was also fertility. <laughs> and when I see her as a counterpart, she is like Asherah that you talk about a lot. Uh, Inanna is Asherah. Asherah is Astart. Like we see this essentially in all these areas around that region be the same type of right this idea yeah go ahead no you're you're so right i i believe that a lot of it came about because of that of the bronze age collapse and in that vacuum that that short period of time where there's a bit of darkness for instance that's like i'm talking specifically about canaan because i know other people go through different time periods but mm -hmm. so around 1500 1400 whatever they're vassals, Canaan's a vassal to Egypt. So, of course, we're going to see a lot of religious crossover. We have um, Athtart, which is also Asherah, which is also Kudshu. So we're talking about down into Egypt. This is the same goddess, just under different name. Mm -hmm. Are the practices all the same? I d like, dude, I, I don't freaking know. I have zero clues. But again, it's that same, just like you brought up with Inanna. It's that same idea of what does a mother goddess do for her people? Mm -hmm. We know that she's going to provide life. She's going to help you give birth. She's going to help you breastfeed. I mean, just all, all the things that you need. <laughs> and damn, what drives me crazy is that like they see the world in such a binary, but won't accept that okay, if you see that there is black and white, there's male and female, then how do you expect us to be fulfilled in a male deity, mm -hmm. right? In that binary world, that makes no sense. That's where Asher comes in. She is the one who fills that void. And if anything, she was there thousands and thousands of years ago before like the male de deities really started taking over but anyway so out of that little vacuum somewhere around 1100 to let's say bce the bronze age mm -hmm. collapsed there's not much written there's not much in archaeology but somewhere around i don't know 900 or so i guess we get david supposedly and solomon and we get this small group of people building a kingdom which i think is really cool that we regardless if it's true or not that we have these mm -hmm. ideas but I truly believe in my heart of hearts that these patriarchs were polytheists. It's in their poetry. And I believe that they also believe that it was okay to worship the divine feminine next to Yahweh. And there was nothing wrong with that for, I believe, 600 years mm -hmm. until eventually they, the Babylon 
takes down the temple. But up until that time, yeah, okay, sure. There were dudes who didn't like it. There were dudes who raged about it and lamented about it. Oh, oh God, your poor pride is so hurt because there's a female goddess. Okay, I feel so bad for you. But there were also two, as the Bible clearly lays out, polytheist kings and rulers who brought back the Asher, put her right, like every time she was removed, put her right back where she belonged because that was the natural state of the world. And it was a bit of a weird thing, sorry, not trying to hurt any people's feelings, for a God not to have a counterpart. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I've talked about that in the ball cycle where there's a God, Atar, who's kind of mentioned in Isaiah 14, who doesn't have a wife and the gods are like, this dude can't rule. He don't even have a wife. He don't have a throne. He was kind of emasculated. Mm -hmm. So I think there were probably people who thought it was absolutely bonkers that you'd want to take Asherah out of the temple. That's my, I mean, and I'm sure other people agree with that, but that's how I see it. I see that the natural balance was the two counterparts. And of course, I think femininity, masculinity is all on a scale, right? I mean, you can be feminine and masculine at the same time. But all of one thing, I don't even think that all of divine feminine would be probably a good balance either. Like I can see that there there's a need to meet in the middle. Um, but yeah, so I don't think that it's until sometime after the collapse of the temple after Babylon, when we see, okay, these prophets starting to look over you know, do look combing through places that clearly had gods written in it. Um, Hosea, I believe, is it's either Hosea or Micah has mention of plague and pestilence with Yahweh by his side, his brothers doing business. And that was not seen as like something horrible. That was actually seen as something powerful. You've got a pantheon of gods behind you. So it doesn't become strange or weird from what I'm starting to see now until somewhere around the third century. So where other people say monotheism is kicking in after the exile, like immediately Mm -hmm. fifth century, I feel like it's really not starting to be super redacted until around the Septuagint. um, Because I think there's evidence in the Septuagint that Asher still was in Bible, Hebrew scriptures, um, manuscripts, etc. And so to some people, her existence was still talked about. Maybe not worshipped. Yeah. I can't. I can't make that claim. Right. But you know that what was happening at the central place where Yash, what Yahweh worship was taking place. That's how it was happening. But we can't account for what's happening out in the remote areas. They're probably freaking Baal Asherah whooping it up out there, out there. So just this cohesive idea of monotheism is just a lie that I'm trying to combat. And it doesn't work. No, it's, it's very difficult that. to overcome it. We, we, we've had it pushed so hard. And I even want to say it's not even been pushed hard for 2,000 years. I'd say maybe 1,500, 1,400 Thank years. Thank you. We've seen monotheism actually being pushed difficult. And, and I know we're also speculating a little bit, of course, in terms of when Asherah was removed from the from the Bible. I, I know that 
King Josiah in Judah, you know, from like 640, right. something like that. He had his Deuteronomists uh, that came through right. their reform. And we know that the law code in the book of Deuteronomy through chapters 12 and 26 um, reflect what that law was. So it shows that there was redactions in the text during that time period mm -hmm. and that they were removing pagan altars and idols from the temple and, you know, things like that, even before the fall of right. the temple overall. They were trying, so they yes. were trying to do that. And then the fall happened, what, 30 years post-date? Not too long. Yeah, right. If you ask me, people believe that it, the fall happened because the idols oh, were removed. That's very Yeah, I, I have to find my notes where that is, but somebody wrote about it. Uh, I believe a historian. Shoot, I'm sorry. But I can find that for you if you're interested. But yeah, the, there are people who have a viewpoint Mm -hmm. That if it were punishment from Yahweh, why didn't it happen while the temp while the idols were still in the temple? Yeah, seems seems a bit silly to come after the fact. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I stand too. Maybe that was punishment from the divine. <laughs> but but I mean, I know you can't make the claim of when exactly it occurred. But I would say that yeah, I, I no. think that your understanding just of humans in general and how we deal with change. There's a good chance that for another. 50, 100, 200 years, folks were still talking about Asherah up until like mm -hmm. the third century BCE. It was still a conversation. There was still a recognition, at least among the people, if not in the temples, of this goddess that was worshipped for however long that she was worshipped because it's right. not just going to disappear overnight. You're not going to erase it that quickly. It's the same reason we can't fucking get rid of Christianity because people have spent so much time worshipping it. You're right. <laughs> we could spend all this time, you know, teaching science and, and teaching, you know, why there's myths behind these things, but people will not let it go. It's going to continue oh, being gosh. a prominent piece of our civilization for some time until we eventually say, okay, enough is enough. Which is why I think that it's super important we have these open discussions and flush it out because I do feel the more we can educate people about what really happened I don't want to take away their faith. You can, you can still believe in Jesus. He probably he probably existed. Mm -hmm. Is the story about him true? That's where I won't like claim that I have any knowledge. Did he exist? Probably. So sure. I think that if anything, if you believe that Jesus is the second Moses or the second Abraham, what I would do is I would want to know who's Abraham, Abraham and who's Moses. And they're polytheists. <laughs> like, I hate to, like, break people's hearts when I say that. But they're looking at the first century through the world of, like, Judaism that they know of today. And that's not the world that Jesus knew. That's been created after the fact. And same with Christianity and Judaism. Of what we know today, those religions really came after like the first century after the fall of the temple, again, so many things changed because, again, Synchristy mm -hmm. happened. We can't change that. It was a devastating event and some really interesting thoughts rose out of it. Which is, Does it make it true? No. I have to say it's always very difficult for me to understand that people would think that individuals like Abraham would be monotheistic. His father was from Uruk. He worshipped Nana, who was called Sin. Uh, there within Chaldea, like he was in yes. an area where there was multiple guys. He he had an idol shop. That's what Tarad did. He was did. An, he was an idol maker. That's right. He That's created right. idols for multiple that. gods for everyone. Why would wow. you think that his son 
is a monotheistic individual. And, and I mean, sure, maybe he then devoted himself to one singular God and moved out. Sure. You know, and, and that could be the beginning there of that happening. But it doesn't make any sense that he would understand the world through that lens when his own father was an idol maker. Uh, Moses, mm -hmm. of course, we have no uh, actual evidence of him ever existing. Or really, I don't know what we do for Abraham either outside of what's in the Bible. But it's just interesting right. uh, to see that that's the perspective taken. And then even in regards to Christianity being a monotheistic religion, when it was introduced in antiquity as a belief system, it was a polytheistic society, which is why nobody really cared that you were going around talking about another God-man that, you know, had these right. special powers because there was multiple stories like that about multiple people that they were just sharing back and forth and like, oh, here's my deity, here's your patron deity. Here's when we worship them. Here's how you worship them. And they just kind of cross tails and pick up things and add to them and subtract from them to make their particular God look better than the ones around them. <laughs> yeah. It's always a, a dick showing contest. You know what I mean? <laughs> my, my God's bigger than your God's. My God is better mm -hmm. than your God. Or, or it wasn't like that, or it was just sharing, you know, it, it didn't always have to be this war thing. I think that's mm -hmm. kind of how we view it now. There was a lot of sharing and just, compromise as well as arguments but there was a lot of um people coming together out of need and desperation probably right mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of death and destruction so you you're gonna cling on to whatever memories that you know you mm -hmm. can hold on to and that might be stories you're not familiar with but if it sounds like something of your culture you keep it yeah. makes sense to me so I want to bring you back because I know you have tons of notes on this and I'd love for you to dive into them a little bit because I, I do agree that masculinity, femininity is on this continuum and we all possess different aspects of this even within ourselves. And oftentimes we mm -hmm. uphold these deified figures as being representatives of one extreme or another extreme and then we put them within the same place to like have, you know, this... Uh, idol, this token, this, this representation to kind of refer back to when we're talking about those particular types of traits. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at this in regards to early Judaism, you know, sixth to third centuries, we'll say, what did you see as references of how Asherah is still in the Bible? Like, how do you, how did you come to this and be like, no, this really was a prominent figure. What is the research to back it up of saying that, you know what, Yahweh did have a cohort and how did he get that cohort? So, a lot of what I found is like when it comes to archaeological finds, there's been, I think, three or four or five major ones that mention Asherah and Yahweh in like a blessing form. Mm -hmm. And so what scholars did, which is I'm just reading the scholars like, you know, I'm not anybody that smart, but I can read the, the smart people and follow what they do. So they're looking at these blessings on these engravings or whatever they find, idols, whatever you want to call them. And they're comparing them to scriptures in the Bible. For instance, like Deuteronomy 33, with a possibility of rendering that with where uh, Yahweh came from. He came from Seir, Mount Paran. Like they're mentioning all the places we know mm -hmm. Yahweh was seen and worshipped, probably a tutelary deity in some of these places, as they are for each individual kingdom, right? And, but he comes down from the mountain and what is translated is something like law or maybe lightning or flashes. Like there's a few different translations. And when people looked at 
because this is Deuteronomy. So this is mm -hmm. supposed to be, like you said, around Josiah's time, this mm -hmm. uh, 700, 600, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Technically, there should be zero mentions of Asher in there. But when they look at this one word that they translate to law or Torah or whatever, mm -hmm. it's a Persian loan word. And I didn't know that until I saw it in Francesca Stavrakopoulos' Bible's Buried Secrets. And that is kind of what bubbled stuff up for me where I was like, wait a minute, are you telling me that Asher is in the Bible, but it's, duh, been redacted because obviously you're not going to find her in there. But if you know where to look, if you do like textual analysis and whatnot, yeah, you can find it. So I found this paper. And it looks as though just by rearranging the letters, just two different letters that look very similar, mm -hmm. Doth or Law would turn into Asherah. So this blessing would uh, that are on these different Ashraka would match the Deuteronomic verse of Yahweh coming down from the mount with his Asherah, as she would be on his right hand side. And to even go on deeper like nobody else might care about this and i'm i'm having a hard time finding people to talk about this if you look in the hebrew the first line above that says he comes down for the mountain with his holy ones holy ones is kudshu and i told you earlier kudshu is actually the egyptian version of asherah mm. so is that even a double mention i don't know because kudshu could also just mean holy ones because her name means like holy one, sanctuary. That is who she encompasses to be. Mm -hmm. So I I can't say that I know that for sure, but damn if that's not some good evidence that even in Deuteronomy, there were people who were writing at one point who saw her at Yahweh's right-hand side. Again, makes sense because other writers, other prophets are writing Yahweh with other deities doing some badassery mm -hmm. i mean talk about for instance when the army there's like 180,000 people he has an angel of death supposedly it's probably a god some god one of the canaanite gods who does the dirty work for him so yeah it makes a lot of sense that yahweh works with other gods in the pantheon and in that paper i think there was four or five other re references that when you looked at the septuagint compared to what was written in the hebrew I'm pretty convinced that it was likely Asherah and even in good references, mm -hmm. like the the place of weeping where the Asherah weeps or something like that, basically talking about what would be her sanctuary and they've changed it to the weeping of the trees. Well, hello, I've just told you like Asherah worship happens in a sanctuary in a garden in a grove. In, amongst the tree. Yeah. Right. So, to me, like I'm getting goosebumps talking about it and people probably have no idea what I'm saying. But in my opinion, when you start uncovering those dusty layers, her name does pop up and not just in a negative. It's actually in a positive light. Yeah. So, so much we can speculate on this. It can be really yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I don't want you guys to take like everything that we're saying here is just absolute like this. Is, right. This is no, scripture. no, no. But it, it's one I want to point out that you say that the writer's seen this. When you say see this, you mean that their perception is is that this masculine form of Yahweh with his feminine cohort always went together. They perceive that these things were a joint union. And so when you're saying see, you're not saying that they physically Yes. Okay. <laughs> saw this. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they envisioned like to them 
it wasn't out of the ordinary to have a counterpart to your God. Mm-hmm. If anything, it seems out of the ordinary to be a single God. <laughs> yeah. And I know that people say, well, monotheism happened before in time. I think, I don't know if it was Akhenaten, you might know, but there yeah. was a guy who tried, like there's been other times in history, sure, they've tried it, but it's failed. Yeah. And if you ask me, I think it's still failing pretty miserably. And even then when Akhenaten tried to do the monotheistic thing, I mean, he did fail with it, but it was still an allowance, I think, of other gods at the time. There were still other gods that were being worshipped in other temples. It was just right. like, this is the best one to worship in the high one and just worship this one. But they still allowed worship of other gods, I think at the same time within the communities. Yeah, I don't there. think it was a complete condemnation. Like, yeah. right. Like, as and, yeah. and when I, so even though I say at that time, the, those authors, those writers, whatever, they all had their own opinion. This, I think we get this idea because the Bible's put together that they all have that one voice and it's not a univocal voice. They all have their mm-hmm. opinion. They're all speaking in the, in their own voice about what they feel Yahweh's doing it. But there comes a time where scribes, redactors are like, oh, that is going to be a problem. So for years and years, this stuff was not a problem. It just wasn't, people weren't bothered by it. Mm -hmm. And then at some point it does become a problem and, and they'll change letters if it's as simple as changing letter they will absolutely do it and we don't realize as christians at least for me i always thought that the bible wasn't errant Mm -hmm. so that happening is just like when i found out that scribes would just erase stuff and put something else like what that's bananas but no that's just as simple as it was done (laughs) that yeah that's how Scripture works. I'm sorry. If they wanted it, they would write it. Simple as that. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend who deconverted about the same time that I did almost 15 years ago from the Bible. And it was in finding that the Bible itself is not inerrant and how much it's been doctored and adjusted and changed and how much we don't know what was actually said in the original language or what the original texts were. And at that point, he's like, you know, have spirituality, but you can't use this as a basis for anything. Like there, there's no yeah. way to come back to the Bible and say that you're going to find some sense of truth because it has been so mingled up by everyone that's touched it along the way for 2,500, 3,000 years. You just can't. Oh, God. There, there's no right. way to even go back to it and say that this is going to be the guiding, you know, principles or the, or the, you know, the, the lighthouse for my life. There's no way to utilize it for that because you start getting into it at the level that you are and you're like, this is... I can see entire sentences missing. I can see entire segments cut. Right. Um, going back to the, the story of, you know, Abraham and his father. I, I've shared this before. I'm actually putting it into a book that I'm working on. But the oh, sweet. the original story around that has nothing to do with um, anybody going into a furnace and burning and anything along those lines. The original story in the most ancient form that we've found it in just has to do with Abraham getting mad at his father, breaking up the shop, trying to burn it down, his idol shop, and Haran running into the idol shop and dying in the fire. Oh, wow. And that's it. It has nothing. Right, just. That's it. 
It has nothing to do with being taken to Nimrod or whatever. Nothing has to do with going into the furnace. Nothing to do with being saved. It was Haran died in the fire because he ran in to try to save his father's idol shop when Abraham tried to burn it down. And there's so much dogma that's to so many stories. I mean, even which one is it, Mark or Matthew, where the ending is not even, there's like so many additions to the ending and it was really was supposed to end with the ladies finding the tomb empty and going away. Yeah. How do you remove that from people's, mm-hmm. I struggle. I sh- like, I was blown away when I found out Paul and Luke didn't know each other mm-hmm. because I just thought, oh, well, Paul talks about a physician, doesn't he? Well, no, when you start separating all these different books from each other, no, these people didn't know each other, but I've connected everything in my brain because of the, you know, policies and dogma and whatever else traditions that my religion has. And now trying to pull those all apart, mind blowing. It really yeah. is mind blowing. Like that never happened, but people really think that that happened. And that's what I'm thinking of what, even when I'm hearing you talk about these stories in the you know, the Old Testament and looking at where Asherah has been reducted out of that text, the people that originally wrote those stories had no intention of them being bound up and put together and and connected together in any type of way. And then you had individuals that have been, you know, these scholars that were essentially ordered to come and connect it and put it together and piece it together, especially during this time, of course, King Josiah. And he's like, go through and make this all make sense and have it work together. And so they're just cutting things out and piecing things in and trying to make it one fluid right. text. I like to think that somebody used this symbology being like, you know, I can't completely just cut out the cohort of, you know, Yahweh. And so yeah. I'm going to write it in code so people can still find it because I, I just can't do what the king's asking me to do. That's a really nice thought. But who knows what the actual intention was? But you know what? That is a thought that we should have. I think that that is a thought that we should keep because, for instance, I have a Jewish friend. He's a rabbi. He can accept all the truth about the Bible. He can accept Yahweh was a dick at times. He, it, like, it's not a problem for him. It doesn't affect anything. So if someone were to ask him to do something like erase Asherah, he probably, I mean, is he going to do his job? He's going to do his job. Mm-hmm. But, hmm, how can I maybe keep her there, hide her? I absolutely think that's a possibility. People just be, uh, just because monotheism is an idea doesn't mean that everybody agrees with it wholeheartedly in erasing what happened, erasing the truth, because they can agree that I can admit that this took place, but we're at a better place now. Where mm-hmm. we've finally gotten to where we need to be. So who knows? It's absolutely within the realm of possibility. As you've been looking into this transformation from polytheism to monotheism, you know, somewhere between 6th century BCE and, I don't know, 6th century <laughs> CE, uh, <laughs> What do you think the primary motivation is behind that? What's the goal from it? Is it something that is naturally Oh, Lord Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> if you so can call his name three times, he might finally show up so we can stake him again. Uh, if you... Yeah. <laughs> if... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, if... I don't know if I am. If we... If he starts <laughs> another religion, <laughs> we might have to. Um, but 
like, what, what is the real motivation there, do you think? Do you think it, I, I guess my real question is, is it a natural progression of human circumstances that have bled into what has happened and what has occurred? Or is it a diabolical plan to actually exert something upon humanity? I think that it's natural in the fact that when people get away with bad behavior, bad behavior for so long, they can incense each other. And I think that it really does come down to misogyny and patriarchy, even though that might not have been words that we, we would use back then. I absolutely think that it comes down to control because you can, you're, if the divine is a representation, like a projection of who we are, mm -hmm. and you erase me, you've taken away my communication with the divine. Yeah, that is really going to seriously debilitate me. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, at this point in my life, I, I enjoy learning about the divine feminine. I don't know that I have any connection to a divine feminine. But for the women who exist today i feel i can i can sense a deep need for a connection to something more their style in the divine in the cosmic whatever it might be and i see so many like witches like popping up all over the place mm -hmm. and as much as like i don't like a lot of the whitewashed versions of it I do enjoy seeing women connecting to like these really super like Hecate or whatever divine, mm -hmm. wherever their spirit leads them. You know, I think that's great and is lacking. So to me, it makes sense that men would see that connection and need to remove it in order to control. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's, exactly what i feel but it all comes down to misogyny and patriarchy well, control 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 money power influence all of it i do have to reiterate that i i like the idea of seeing women re-engage with whatever divine femininity that they look <laughs> at because i think that it's really a, a rebirthing of their own personal power and that's what i see a lot of people yeah. engage with witchcraft forge is it's like it allows me to find myself find my power find my identity again and express myself in a way that is not going to be essentially stamped down by somebody else, whether that's man, woman, or otherwise, kind of holding them down into a position where they're sub subjugated. Um, in, in regards to Christianity specifically, I'm always curious, because I, I know in our modern age, we see Christianity as being a primary... Oof, push. hot cesspool. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but it's, it's, it's kind of like this primary megaphone for patriarchy and reinforcing patriarchy, but I don't and this may get me a little bit of trouble with viewers, I don't know that Christianity invented patriarchy. And I no, no, no. And, and I, I think that they're just a tool that's nope. reinforcing its themes. And because of its widespread and its influence, it's continuing to keep this position of being patriarchal in nature. And if they were to really change their, their structure and their dogma and bring back that divine femininity and re-empower women, it'd probably be much more accepted than it is today. But instead, yeah. they're using age-old ideas that may have very well been introduced by king josiah and they're falling back on that as a as a it's very lazy as a structure of saying this is how our our religion is formed and for that reason it's being rejected and i think they like to use well this is how it's just been this is how it's always been mm -hmm. in fact when christianity 
if we want to call it Christianity, it'd probably like be better to call it like Judaism as a Christian sect. But anyway, they championed women. Just look at the letters that we know Paul wrote. He mentions women many times who were leaders in the church. And then even in some of the synoptics with Mary being um, likely a leader in the church, Mary the Watchtower, she held an exalted position. So in, what I'm thinking is that early Christianity, Judaism, what, Judaism the crossover, were pro-women and had women in priestly positions. They were prophesying. Mm -hmm. And it's not until, well, I'm not sure which church fathers were the first ones to really start. But I know Eusebius. I know all those guys. They hated women. They thought they were demented, the creation of sin. Some of the stuff was so deplorable. It was really heartbreaking to think that most of the people who exist on this planet Earth think all these nasty things about women. And it's not even in the Bible. It's come from centuries later, these doctors of the church, they're called. When early Christianity would have had, I think, even the letter to the Romans, because I, I believe that's where women would have definitely had um, higher positions because even in paganism, they still did. There was still um, not a lot. I, I'm not saying like, oh, everything was great and it was this egalitarian. I'm not trying to be grandiose here. But considering where we're at today, there was probably even more power for women back then than there is today in many churches, which is, it's wild to even think that. Yeah, I, I am a little rusty on my information from the New Testament in regards to how it perceived women. Most of what I have heard has been negative in nature. You know, that Paul had a, a negative stance on women, you know, even though there were women that were moving around and preaching that he may have um, been excited about. He still made a lot of rules around women or people that at least used Paul's name in writing some of his <laughs> Right, the pseudepigrapha they have yeah. they, they yeah, but... and that and most of those books like mo like for instance Timothy is is one of the big ones that rags mm -hmm. on, that's not Paul and that's mm -hmm. second century. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's I forget which other books. There. Yeah, that, that's what I was looking for there, Ryan. Is that I wonder how much people apply those things to Paul for books they that do. are written underneath Paul's name that weren't written by Paul. Yeah, and that's super upsetting knowing that this guy. If he's everything he says he was, he was a Jewish man. And so that likely meant that, that because Jewish people have respect for females, okay, maybe they were getting rid of their, they still had decorum and accepted them in worship. And here comes whatever, Timothy, whoever they were trying to pretend they're Paul and, oh, you can't talk in church. You can't do this um, because there's a verse in Corinthians that I've done research on where Paul says it might be that might be the one where they he says you can't talk in church or something of that mm -hmm. nature and um when they've done like linguistic studies of it it looks like a verse is has shifted position and actually Paul is saying like how dare you not allow women to teach in church which completely changes like the whole narrative of the story yeah it does. so yeah, so it's really wild to think that Paul might have actually, like, I've hated Paul. He might have been actually a kind of okay, not terrible sort of dude. <laughs> Man, I won't quote you on that because the jury is still out. 
<laughs> yeah, do not do not quote me. But it's ridiculous that within a period of I I don't know if he's writing somewhere in the 50s and then let's say Timothy comes around like 120 or something. So within a period of 70 years ish just like that they're already starting to mm-hmm. knock women down and write treacherous things about them. Really disappointing. Well, and then really we see dis- the, what, and then we see the formation of course of how the Bible's constructed later on a couple of centuries later and what books they pick yeah. and how do those certain powers influence how we perceive the actual mm-hmm. religion and the Because they have created a narrative for us to follow and we believe like everything's at least that's my impression that things were kind of in this chronological order and like mm-hmm. sequential order. And then to find out, oh, okay, Revelation is the end of the book. It almost didn't even make it. But then Timothy is actually writing like 30 years after Revelation is being written. Like, hold on, wait, something just doesn't make sense because they want you to think that everything happened in a certain way. And it was nothing like that whatsoever. No. Not- but again, they wouldn't know they're being put in a book, right? They had no idea this was going to be compiled and put in a narrative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, not even in the Old Testament are those things in order in which they were written. I mean. No, no. I just did that um, video about Job, which was one of the mind-blowing things to me. Because when you Google what's one of the oldest books in the Bible, you'll get Job. They'll tell you Job is one of the oldest ones. And sure, like maybe it has some older ideas like that. I, I believe that's a possibility. But regardless, the way it's written, um, it's using like Persian influence language, which is coming. Which we, we don't have to get down an entire uh, no, no, but... rabbit trail with this, but I've always believed Job to be the oldest. I know that Job comes out of the Akkadian tale of man and his God, which is a Near East tale. So we have the original tablet. There's that other, yeah. Um, and the book of Job that we have within the Bible, there are, there's a, a, researcher named Christine Hayes that talks about the book of Job and how it's put together. I love but, her. But there's additional pieces that are added into Job that are Persian in nature and that changes the meaning of Lasetion in Job about midway through where the role of Satan changes um, in the story and how it's referred to. And it also changes like perspective. I don't know if it's like a first person, third person, but there's a way that it's written that it changes as well. But essentially the, the story, the core of it is very old. Like we're talking 20, well, 4,500 years old that, right. was, that was borrowed. And then you have all these pieces that have been added on by Jewish mystics uh, later on and, and Jewish writers later on. And they still believe it, sons fit. of God. Yep, to have it fit their narrative. And they still believe, yes, in the sons of God in that. And that's why I'm trying to tell people at that moment, they had an opportunity when they're Mm-hmm. Like you said, putting everything, compiling this book together, there was a clear opportunity to erase this idea of a pantheon, but they still leave B'nai Elohim. And I'm like, I don't know. I just geek out over that stuff because I'm like, see, monotheism, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Really? Is there monotheism? <laughs> I, I know Dan McClellan does a great job of explaining this, but why don't you tell us? Oh, what, why don't he's you tell so us, good. Tell he's us what so Sons good. of God is because there's a lot of mis, a misinformation about what Sons of God is. So B'nai Elohim, the first time that we hear about them is in Genesis when I guess it's like the fall story where the sons of God, which basically are a pantheon of gods, 70 gods mentioned in other texts, like 
the Ugarit mm-hmm. text, like the ball cycle. I'm sure mm-hmm. you've spoken about that before. And they are sons of El or Elohim or Elion, who we all know eventually becomes Yahweh. And B'nai Elohim just simply means gods. At some point, they're trying to cover up the fact that it's gods and they write angels. So what they do is they demythologize an entire pantheon and just turn them into subservient beings to Yahweh. Hey, definitely cool. Like, Mm -hmm. dude, like some of that writing is super dope. Like, I can't blame them. Maybe I'd have done the same damn thing if I needed to get rid of some gods. Like, super cool. But again, the underlying idea behind that is a variety of gods who are badass and mm-hmm. Yahweh even borrowed ideas from them, borrowed epithets of them, titles, poetry. That's what they did. So, and just to it's be clear again, of... when when Ryan is saying that he went on borrowed these things, Yahweh as an individual oh. didn't physically go out and just like rob things from Thank people you. and take them and, and just like take El's <laughs> crown and put it on his head. It, she's talking about <laughs> conflation taking place. You're seeing that the cult of Thank Yahweh is, is moving out there. He's being conflated with other gods. He's being associated with them. He's picking on up pieces about them and then becomes more popularized with those. And then they build yes. temples to him and it erases the other god. And he takes on both names. Because that's a sim. And thank you for clarifying that. I do oversimplify. But to some extent, that is how simple it was. Mm-hmm. At that moment when they compiled that story, like, oh, what are we going to do with all these gods? Okay, so we we need to get rid of this pantheon of gods because we don't want people to worship them. Shoot. Okay, the kings that are well-known in the country, the Rephaim, Mm -hmm. known as the Nephilim, are super powerful. Everybody knows stories about them. What are we going to do? It was as simple as writing a story where they all get combined into this one menagerie and they all become bad. Mm -hmm. And that's just how it was. It doesn't have to be super complicated. And not that I agree with it. But again, I'd probably do it if I were in that position and I need to some gods Yeah, just write a polemic about them. I oftentimes think about whether or not this was repeated and reflected in antiquity regarding to Jesus with like characters like Apollonius um, or other ones that have the exact same types of stories and and the other messiahs that were, uh, you know, crucified during the time. They just essentially combining and collect stories and at the end of the era of the season, you have one that emerges that carries on all the aspects of all the rest of them because they've now collected them. And then that's the one that yeah. you take on and continue worshiping. Um, it's not, I thought that too. Yeah. Because there's so ma- there are so many messiahs even just mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And you've, you have this idea of, you know, the, not every Jewish person believed in Messiah and some of them believed in different ideas of Messiah. There's not just mm-hmm. this one, but absolutely. If there were these other Messiah figures, because, you know, Canaan's been, their ass has been handed to him. I don't know how many damn times <laughs> at some point you might hope that somebody's coming to save you. Mm-hmm. And maybe this was just happened to be the right guy to put all these different ideas and thoughts into and write about. I absolutely can see that. And I I feel like I see it happening today in a sense with many like popular people, just all these things that aren't even true, but people seem to make the claim and go along with it and believe it. And I wonder for how long that will last. I can't claim to know, 
But it's, yeah, I think that idea in antiquity just repeats and repeats and repeats. Forever, Brian. It's going to keep going. Forever. It's part of the human condition, I think. It's very interesting Mm -hmm. that we are a storytelling people. We enjoy telling stories. We conflate issues. We build things up. We hear something that sounds really great. And so we bring it into our story to make our story sound more bold and and more acceptable in nature. We saw it happen in Mesopotamia. We saw it happen in Egypt. We saw it happen in antiquity. I think one of the reasons that Judaism specifically was so successful in rooting itself in our history is because they wrote down their belief systems and they had scribes uh, and they had that knowledge to be able to do that. Thank and, goodness. And Christianity borrowed that same tactic, which allowed them to then grow and build and be as effectual today because a lot of the individuals at that time period did not have the, the, the writing and reading skills to be able to do mm-hmm. what Judaism and Christianity did. If they had, mm-hmm. we'd had very conflicting belief systems today. There'd be a lot of challenges. Oh, yeah, it could be different. <laughs> a different landscape for sure. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with you. I, that is exactly why, even though I may not like everything that is entailed and written about in the Bible, mm-hmm. I think it's amazing that we at least have this little piece, this little sliver of history. And yeah, sure, maybe we have to read between the lines to find out some of the truths and take it with a grain of salt, or maybe we have to compare it side by side with archaeological finds. It's still brilliant literature. Mm -hmm. The problem is taking it for actual history. We need to see it for what it is. It's beautiful stuff. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's some cool poetry. It's some cool ideas. And I am thankful that we do have it and that it has not been destroyed. I just think that we need to separate the. Yeah. We need to stop putting morals into the Bible because you and I both know it's not a book of moralities. No. That's not what it is. It's just stories. Just stories. Yeah, I've heard some great speakers on the topic, you know, talking about how the Bible is this amazing collection of myths and poetry and what have you that we should collect and that we should have and that we should look back on and we should study. And there's little nuggets in there to pull out that gives us hints to our history and our past and where we came from. And I think that's beautiful. But to make it into a theology that you're teaching to children and telling them it's absolute truth, that's kind of where I draw the Uh, line. I'm like, please just stop doing that. Yeah, we, we don't need to do that. You're, you're giving them a very cookie-cutter worldview that causes a lot of harm, and, and that's not necessary. And it, it's repeating again in, like, America, just with the erasure of indigenous people, just like the erasure of the d- indigenous people who lived in Canaan that the mm-hmm. Israelites conti- continuously rag on about when literally you are the same people. Stop. Just take care of yourselves. <laughs> I think that's the message everyone should end with today. All right, right. Yeah. So, so tell me, where can people connect with you at? Any final messages on divine femininity? Any final things you want to say before we wrap up today? Oh, great question. Um, you know, I think that if you're on a path leaving, like walking away from the Bible, I do think that you still can draw wisdom from it. But you can draw wisdom from yourself. You can draw wisdom from asking questions. You can draw wisdom from your friends and family. And I think the beauty of this life is realizing we can accept that bad things happened in the past. And even in those bad things, there's good that has come from it. But to continuously try to live by moral standards of the past is only going to put us in a worse predicament. I I think that's why we're in the predicament we are. So 
find the divine, find the good, find the find the the best parts of the goddesses that you convene with instead of being forced to convene with a god that just Yahweh just might not be Jesus just might not be your god but maybe there's another god out there and that's okay whatever you take from the divine i think at this point is okay i don't think that you have to be dogmatic i don't think you have to follow certain procedures or certain traditions don't like don't be disrespectful like i'm not saying crossover i I do draw a line like Jewish tradition is a closed practice. But as far as the rest of it goes, do what works for your heart. It's a personal thing. They always tell you the relationship with God is personal. And then that's exactly what it should be. Ask the questions you need to answer. Find those answers and find your way on your own. And just find people who support you. That's that. Oh, and you can find me um, speaking a lot of bull crap on <laughs> on youtube uh, my name is ryan Caltastic, Caltastic, excuse me and you can also find me on tiktok under like your church says tax the churches because we should tax the churches <laughs> and um you can find me on other places but if you find me there you can find my other socials so that's good all right thank you so much ryan for hanging out with me again it's always a pleasure to hang out with you yeah, thank you. I love talking about this and nobody else likes digging into it. So anytime you want to dive into some weird abstract Canaanite ideas, I'm down for it. That sounds good. <laughs> We're going to need some book recommendations from you too later. <laughs> yeah, oh, I have a ton. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thank you guys so much again for hanging out with us here on Gods of Tomorrow. Again, I am Josh Draw. I very much appreciate you guys being here with me today. As for now, please just go out, live your best lives, go and do something that is going to make your future self appreciate it. Be the best version of yourself. And as always, do what the fuck you will. Mm -hmm.